Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along, it's always one of the advantages when we have a bank holiday Monday. The week just seems to uh, fly by and we find ourselves at Thursday in the blink of an eye. The topic of flotels for asylum seekers seems to be very much back on the agenda. We welcome your thoughts uh, on this. Uh, it's now being reported that flotels for asylum seekers will now be progressed by the government and a tendering process is uh, now expected. Floating asylum seeker accommodation. You may have spotted this on the news. It recently opened in Britain. Now, there is a lot of critics against these floatels, uh, comparing them to being like floating prisons. But the decision to introduce floatels was made as the country. We are obviously grappling. We have an unprecedented accommodation uh, crisis. You know, people People will say we can't house our own, let alone people who are arriving onto our shores seeking international protection. Now, seemingly multiple offers of floating accommodation has already been made to uh, the government. That's according to the Department of Children Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth. However, the Ukrainian accommodation procurement team, they're separate to the team that tries to find accommodation for asylum uh, seekers. They say for Ukrainian refugees, they are not considering any type of floating uh, accommodation uh, for them. Uh, details of where the floatels are to be birthed, all of that is yet to be finalised. As I say, they've yet to go. They have to go to the tendering stage first and then obviously they'll look at uh, where they will, once they've tendered and once they know the size of these floatels, they'll then, I suppose, decide where they're going to be uh, birthed. The Department Department said that the use of tents is now necessary to accommodate. Now, they're saying it's a small percentage of international protection applicants who have arrived in recent days and everyone accepts tents are not the way to go. So they're saying now what we now need to do is look at some kind of floating accommodation for these asylum seekers. But as I say, there's a lot of criticism of them uh, in England and obviously there's criticism of them from human rights groups in this uh, country. And John... Lannan is CEO of Doris. They're a Limerick-based human rights and migrant rights uh, organisation. They say that floating accommodation will just further isolate asylum seekers 
and it will hamper any chance of those asylum seekers integrating into a local community. He said the fact that we are looking at that now, he says it's very worrying. International protection applicants, he says, have already found it very difficult to get access to services and supports in very remote direct provision centres. But he said excluding people and putting them on floating accommodation centres where they don't have access to things like medical care or services or or supports. He said for him that would be very problematic. He, He accepts that there is an accommodation crisis and he says it is continuing. But he said we need to look at ways to ensure that we use available accommodation uh, like he's suggesting that could be vacant buildings or vacant units that could be refurbished for these asylum seekers and he said they're the kind of options he would like the government and the department to be looking at before we start looking at what he says are floating uh, prisons he says in essence that's uh, what they are he said people will be trapped in them he said there are grave worries about floating accommodation being used to house refugees in Britain and obviously they're keeping a close eye on what's happening in uh, Britain. He says they, they seem to be a part of a concerted effort in the UK to deny people the right to access international protection. And he said that's worrying. And he said, I would worry that this trend is being echoed in, to some extent here in this country. He says we are failing to provide for the basic needs of people seeking asylum. He said we currently have people in tents. He said that's wrong and um, particularly and uh, as we move into the winter months we have people on the streets. We failed to provide for what the white paper on, e- on ending direct provision spoke about and that was ensuring accommodation from day one for international protection applicants. He said we need to build more reception centres and ensure that there are language and orientation supports for people when they arrive. He says government needs to be working towards other options. He uh, finished by saying we have a very poor record on temporary options. He said look at direct provision. We still have direct provision 23 years later. That was supposed to be a temporary option and over a year ago tents were used. We were told that was a temporary measure and yet here we have a week later we've got uh, people staying in uh, tents. There's a number of uh, tents. There's 13 tents in County Clare. Each of them are holding six people and then there's 16 uh, tents in uh, an army barracks in County Westmeath with a capacity for eight people uh, per uh, tent. So Flotel's for asylum seekers, yeah, your thoughts uh, on that. And I know, you know, and uh, John Lannan uh, is, you know, he's looking at this, you know, purely from from the immigrants' point of view, these people who are arriving in this country and, you know, saying the government has promised that they would have accommodation uh, from day one. That was in the white paper. But, you know, no one could have predicted the accommodation crisis we were going to have in this country because, of course, nobody could have predicted over a year ago that Russia were going to invade Ukraine and that there would be so many uh, people coming here fleeing war. Um, we already were struggling with the asylum seekers that were here when you look at direct provision and there were so many people calling for an end to direct, direct provision but nobody could have foreseen into the future what was going to uh, happen so I suppose the department and the government and all of the departments within the government will say look we are doing the very best that we can and rather than have people staying in tents particularly when we go into the winter months uh, maybe this idea of flotels uh, is the way to have floating accommodation but you 
you would just hate the thought of it sounding a little bit like a floating prison. And as we've been hearing with Barry all morning on the news, Puck Fair in Kilorglin in County Kerry officially kicks off uh, today and it kicks off with the Horse Fair and then uh, Puck Fair continues for the next three days. It's deemed one of the longest running festivals in the uh, country. I mean, so we're saying that this festival has been running for some 400 years. I don't, you know, there's lots of sort of rumours about how it all uh, started, but it certainly is one of the longest running festivals in the country. And of course, it is rather unique in that Puck Fair celebrates the crowning of a goat and but the big plus for Kilorglin and for that area of Kerry is that it attracts thousands upon thousands of people every year go to Kilorglin and make sure that they're there between the 10th and the 12th of August to be a part of all of the fun and the festival atmosphere and everything that goes with you know a, a carnival festival like this but it, it is certainly unique in the fact that it crowns this uh, puck goat and of course the crowning of the uh, festival uh, is the, the highlight today and then there's the detronement ceremony that happens on the last day so that will be uh, Saturday but of course we know the goat this year is playing a much smaller part in this year's festivities. It's only going to be on its throne for a few hours today and then a few hours for the closing ceremony on uh, Saturday. Festival organisers and the committee say they are embracing change but they do say the nuts and bolts of Puck Fair are the same and it's all systems go because I suppose there has been so much talk about animal rights and the protection of the goat I suppose the organisers are fearful that people might think that the festival is going to be different because the goat is not going to be up over the main street of Kilorglin for the duration of the festival that's traditionally what has happened in previous puck fairs as I say dating back 400 years it's a 50, 50 foot high cage that the goat was normally put into and then it's, it hangs for three days and uh, three nights in Kilorgland. That's obviously not, it's, the goat's only going to be up there for a few hours today and then a few hours on uh, Saturday. And the National Animal Rights Association, they've described the practice as archaic, barbaric and cruel. And groups then, including the Animal Rights Action Network, they had suggested using a mechanical goat or use an effigy instead of a live uh, goat. You know, put up a kind of a stuffed animal that looks like a goat but that doesn't seem to have gone down well uh, with the committee that they've decided no they'll still have a live goat but just it won't be up uh, in the cage for the duration of the festival so it'll be there for a briefer period of time so hopefully that will keep everybody happy the people who because if you remember last year now, this time last year, it did draw a huge amount of attention. I remember we were getting calls in from people. But this time last year, we were in the middle of uh, a wonderful heat wave. Uh, for some people, it was too hot. We had temperatures that were in the high 20s, low 30s in some areas of the country. And of course, there was a huge amount of concern that this goat was going to be placed 50 feet high in scorching hot weather and even the night times were very warm and muggy and humid and they were saying it would be just really, really unfair. So there was a huge outpouring last year to the point that I think every hour the animal was being taken down and checked by uh, a vet and then eventually it was uh, taken down 
for for the majority of the uh, festival last year because of the outpouring uh, and the radio stations all over the country uh, were talking about it. But then that spurred on the whole conversation about what will happen next year because they had no way of predicting if we were going to have a heat wave. We're not, obviously. Uh, but the whole animal rights issue came into it and so the committee decided to make a, deci- a decision on it and say, look, we're embracing change. Don't want to upset everyone. We want everyone to come to Kilorglin to enjoy the fair and not to be worried about the goat. So that's what's happening as and from uh, today. So let's wait and see. And we'll only know after the three days of the festival, was the numbers attending in any way affected by the fact that the committee are embracing change and have decided to just have the goat play a much briefer role in the fair than on previous years. Now, parents are once again facing chaos over school transport in the coming weeks as politicians are inundated with complaints from parents that their child has not at this stage been offered a bus ticket. One of those politicians is Fine Gael Senator Tim Lombard, who joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Tim. Good morning. I have to say this feels a little bit like deja vu. Um, I do this type of uh, interview every single year around this time. When is this issue finally going to get sorted? It's like Groundhog Day. Yeah. No shot of a doubt. Like we've been around this for many, many years and we've gone through this and we've found solutions at, short, at local level. But there's a huge national issue here about how we'll deal with school transportation. And like we got some bit of light in this tunnel that was so dark when the minister announced a review in February 2021 that she's going to review the entire school transportation scheme. And we made a really big submission to that because our view here and always has been that the school transportation scheme isn't fit for purpose because it discriminates on people on where they go to school, how far away they are. And it just doesn't work in this current environment. We have hundreds of thousands of children going to school every day. But for me, if we can take cars off the road, make this more friendly to actually people use, so we can actually, if we took the cars off the road, we'd, we'd have the issue about the carbon would be taken out of the actual transportation system. But the people going to work and trying to you know, rear their family could have a more easier lifestyle. And this entire debate has just dragged on and dragged on. So two and a half years after review, the, the minister still hasn't published a review. And like, so, like, so hang on, just, 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 just stay on that thought for a moment. Are you saying the review is complete? My view, no, no. It, well, my understanding is that it's still ongoing. So two and a half years after she started this review in February 2021, the review hasn't been published. Whether it's complete or not, I'm not aware. But it hasn't been published to the general public. Why? So why would you? Why, in your opinion, would a would a review take that long? I have absolutely no idea. And like you look at a scenario that it affects so many of us in so many ways, and it makes no logical sense that you could go through two school cycles and not have the actual review published. And like I was jumping up and about this last September, last January, again we're jumping up and up up and down about it today because the minister needs to make sure that this review is published and then put a process in place to actually have the recommendations of it enacted. And how, what and has like, been the minister's response to why there's a delay with the review? Oh, the minister's gone to ground in this. There's no point saying she hasn't. I think the minister is feeling the heat in this. And like every time I mention this in the Shannon, the head goes down. She literally does want to go there. Like 
it's it's the ultimate issue for us, for me and for the people that I represent. Hardworking people are trying to rear their kids, trying to, you know, two jobs, to have the idea that you can't depend on the school transportation ticket until it might come in late September, it mightn't come at all. It's just absolutely chaos. So like we have, and I was trying to work it out for you so ago, I think there's over 70 people on to us again. Like and is, is it families. once again families who had a seat in previous years and then don't appear to be getting one this year? It's a mixed match. I had oh, a family it? into us yesterday. That was three of them in the family that had a ticket for the last three years and all three of them are off the bus now. Oh. So you have that scenario. Then I have first year starting school where their friends are on the bus and they're off the bus. Like it's, it's a complete mismatch around the place. And look, we had the issue last year where we had the free school transportation issue, which we people who were taking up the, the offer of school, free school transportation and not taking up the actual bus. But I think the majority of people have seen the benefit of the bus service itself, how it works, how it can interact, how it's better for the community, how it's better for the environment. And like, it's about trying to make sure that the department and the department move in this, like the department move in a completely different space than the rest of us in reality. Like there's children possibly going to be finished school before this actual review is finished. Like that's just unbelievable stuff. And we had two, we had, and you'll remember it because they, they made the news. We had two uh, lads who were driving the family tractor to get them to, to, to school. I, well. I mean, like like, where, where are we going? Like that is, in this day and age, and come here, let's be really honest, with the actual budget surpluses that we have. Yeah. And you know, a cost of living crisis and everything else pertaining to it, putting another, another burden, another, you know, pressure onto these families just doesn't make sense. And like, let's be real sexist here. Like, it's the women that come into my office every day and said, how am I going to get my kids to work? Like, they're, like, they're doing the best for the family, doing the best for the children, doing the best for everyone. And the pressure is probably going to bounce back on them in so many ways. And like, there's a real frustration out there about two and a half years later, no even acknowledgement of when this thing is going to be published, not a mind to when we're going to put the actual proposal in place. But what I always remember is when the schools don't sit, the transportation and the, the whole thing changes, the backlogs, everything, getting to work at half eight is a dream because you can actually get there very easily. Like if we had a scenario that every child on a school bus, the first thing is that the congestion levels would totally change around our villages and town. The other thing is the environmental impacts of this, which would be huge for our society. And every day you open the paper, you hear what's happening around the world about literally huge issues regarding our climate. This is a real win-win for us. And why we're not joining all the dots and putting a real comprehensive plan in place to have everyone on a school bus to reduce carbon, to reduce our, uh, um, our issues regarding climate change. And it benefits society. It benefits every single family that's working so hard. Yeah, and, and, really I, and I do remember during the year speaking with a mother who was going to be forced to have to uh, give up work because her child didn't get a, a seat on the bus. Now they had been, he'd been getting on the bus and was, everything was going okay because there was spare seats on that bus. But eventually an inspector came on, checked he didn't have a ticket and he got turfed off the bus. But she was actually looking if she could come up with some other arrangement of actually giving up her job. And then we had the ridiculous scenario of a brother and a sister in, in a household. One got the ticket and, and the brother got the ticket and the sister didn't. So you had the mother following the bus in order to get the daughter to school. And that kind of scenario, like it's happening across the entire 
country. It's happening in nearly every parish at the moment. Like there's and then there's key there's key areas that are really caught. Banhastic is one area really badly affected at the moment because it's in the crossroads where the schools are. You've got to go to Carrig Line, you've got to Balancholic, you've got to Kim Sale, you've got to, go to Bandon. So because of that, there's nearly 30 kids there affected at the moment. Over by Peddler's Cross, Aliol, another area. And again, on the Kim Sale side of things, the Kill Britain and the Belgooley, Minar Bridge side is affected as well. So you've all these pinch points because they're all crossing a line of 4.8 kilometers. Yeah. And when you go over the 4.8 kilometers, you're deemed to be, and if you're not def- near school, then you're in another scenario. But you and see, I've all... always, that I, that's never sat comfortably with me that, you know, you have to go to your, your nearest school. That's saying that the school transport system is dictating where your son or daughter goes to school. And that shouldn't be the case. They shouldn't be deciding which school your son or daughter should go to. And that's really unfortunate and that is the case at the moment and like just choice here people want the opportunity to send different kids to different schools depending on what their needs are depending on what you know a bigger school might suit some people depending on what's available a smaller school if there's a better service available might suit them you know eat off the school all these things come into it and it just it's just not joined up at the moment but i keep on coming back like like two and a half years ago we pushed this minister into doing the review and now we'll see it put in place, like I'm two and a half years worried at her trying to work out when are we going to have the results. And like they must be appropriate. Like the, this thing about the concessionary ticket, if I, that concessionary terminology just wrecks my head. Like the concessionary ticket is basically a person who isn't eligible because it's probably not their, near, their first nearest school. And they're in a scenario then that they're waiting for a seat to come available on, on the bus. And then it's a lottery system. And nobody can tell me how this lottery system works. So there might be three seats left in the bus with 10 people going, but then three people get it. Is, is, it, is, it, it, is it names in a hat? I've, I've always, they've never come out oh. and said it. You're, you're assuming it's something like that, is it? You're assuming. You just don't know, you know. Yeah. Like I had a lady onto us where there's four people who were caught for the school bus. She had three and her three were, didn't, didn't get the school bus. So her view was that they looked and they said, oh, three here straight away. We can take three and we'll affect another family after that. Uh, so, like, yeah, and we've no, we've no way of knowing. OK, somebody's saying, surely the simple solution to this is that Bus Aaron puts on extra buses or bigger buses. At the end of the day, Bus Aaron will know by the applications in. They know where the demand is. Oh, yeah. Like we all know exactly where the actual demand is. We know where the pinch points are. And like we have the buses, there's no point, like we just debated years ago about the buses. We have the buses, we have an issue regarding uh, drivers, which I think we're getting to the bottom of slowly, but surely. But like, this is about joining up the docks here. Very, very simply done. But like the first step, nothing can move here until the minister publishes the report. Then we need to make sure the report is appropriate. And then after that, then we need to enact it. But until she publishes it, we're going nowhere. Okay, well let's uh, let's wait and see uh, what what happens with that one. But it's uh, for the families; they're back once again, uh, fighting and battling. Listen, uh, Tim, we leave it there. Thank you for that. Thank you, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us on the programme. That is uh, Fine Gael Senator uh, Tim Lumbert, Councillor Declan Hurley listening to us says in relation to the lack of school bus issues, the Council Roads and Transportations SPC have extended several invitations to bus air and to attend our meetings. 
to discuss the issue and they simply won't attend. How do you address an issue when the stakeholder won't even engage? It is so frustrating and so annoying. Kind regards as Councillor Declan Hurley, who I take it is another one of those public reps that I mentioned at the start who are inundated with parents trying to see, can the local councillor help out? Can the local senator help out? Can the local politician help out the TD? It's just crazy and you just think, God, don't, don't politicians have enough to be doing? Is there not other things the politicians could be doing except trying to sort out a seat on a bus for a local child? And somebody feels that the school bus, um, it, it feels there's discrimination going on and it is uh, rampant. Yeah, I mean, we can never find out how those concessionary seats are allocated. I would like to think that if there is three seats left and there's 10 children in the area trying to get on the bus, I would like to think that it's some kind of a random out of the hat, you know, and you would think, God, it's a dreadful way to do it. But the fairest way that everybody, all 10's name goes into the hat and three get picked out, but they will never confirm or deny exactly how how that is done. But uh, every year we have uh, pinch points around the country and particularly around the county where we have areas where there are more young people wanting to get on the bus and there's not enough concessionary tickets. And having just spoken to Senator Tim Lombard about the chaos that many parents are facing trying to get their children onto the school bus, uh, Margaret has contacted us. Uh, good morning to you, Margaret. Good morning, Patricia. Now, you're a chairperson, you're on the Board of Management in Kilcreden. Is it Kilcreden? Yes, Kilcreden. Kilcreden Yeah, where, where is It's near Ladiesbridge, I'm told, is it? it? Uh, well, it's actually the parish, parish of Bellamacorda, Ladiesbridge, and Kilcreden is the, the school for the community. Okay, what, you've got a problem with, am I reading that right, 28 students? Yes, 28 students that we know of um, have been told that they have no ticket for the school bus this year. I suppose, to, to give you a small little bit of history of the school, three schools amalgamated back in 1972-73. Okay. And at the time, the promise was made that the children would be bussed to the school, which was literally built in the middle of the parish in quite a rural area, but a lovely area. And Kincredit National School has thrived down through the years. We had a massive extension put on in 2015, and we have close on 300 children in the school. Um, and we have opening our second special class this year which I suppose is part of my story, because uh, one of the children enrolled into that special class, his parents were very anxious that he attend his local school. Yeah. And now his two siblings have been told, Barry, there's no place on the bus for you. And the fact that that, that little uh, boy has special needs, he'll be entitled to a He'll be entitled to yeah. taxi transport. Yeah, that's and, and different. His parents, and we are, as a community, want to be as inclusive in our school as yeah. we can. Yeah. And uh, uh, so we, we now have a peculiar situation where his two older siblings have no ticket and the younger child can be transported. And I suppose because we're, we're such a long parish, uh, the children from, say, the ladies' bridge side of the parish would be actually in miles nearer to two other schools, Shanagarry and um, Castle Martyr. Shanagarry and Castle March are, while they are wonderful places, they're not our community. Exactly. And hence the reason why, they, according to the bus airing rules and the school transport rules, those schools are, are the closest to them. But that, yes. as I go back to you, why should the school transport dictate where parents send their children? It's, you know, as you say, great schools, but you want your children to be with their own communities. Yes, and, and, and we have, and, and as most, most communities, we have an extremely strong community here. And like some of these children have been in Kilcreden for the last six and seven years. 
Uh, we have one family where two children have been told this year they have had no ticket and their two older siblings have gone on to secondary school, have gone through primary school. And I know even at that stage, the, you know, and, and transport is an issue as well because the school is five, six miles away. So as, as the, Tim Lombard was saying other, earlier on, uh, parents will just have to give up work to yeah, transport to, yeah. to school because I don't think parents are willing to or want to or should have to change their uh, change schools for their children midway through their primary school education. And 28 pupils out of 300, that's nearly 10% of your pupils, yes, Margaret. Yes, yes, yeah. There's a very simple solution to this and that is to put an extra bus on, yeah. you know, uh, an extra 26 seater. That's the solution. Um, Have you ever had a situation with this many students scrambling for tickets? Not this many over the last number of years. Now, I haven't been on the board of management all the time, but I do, like I, I would be, uh, uh, would know a lot about the school. But over the past number, it, it has been an issue over the past three to four years where four, five, six and seven children have not got tickets for the bus. And parents then had to organise lifts or... Or, yeah, or, you know, uh, obviously change their mind if it's an incoming junior instance. Oh, don't, um, you don't want that. You do, you, no, you, you don't. absolutely and, don't want that. Yeah, yeah. Um, OK. But it's annoying, Margaret, that every single year... Well, it's very annoying when you yeah. consider that the Minister has given, you know, has invested how many billions into 98 euro per, per student and free books for the primary school year, I'm sure all of those 28 families would be very happy to pay for their books if they got transferred yeah. for their children. Yeah. And, Give uh, me a bus know, ticket. Yeah, is, is, there, yeah, is there still hope, though, for... for well, we are hoping, uh, uh, as we have a very active principal and a very active board of management, and we have made contact with all our TDs. And I suppose the answer has been really, hold on there, wait two or three weeks. The doll is in recess, so nothing may be done until the end of August. But it's very, very, for those 20, for those 28 children and those families who are involved with those, it's, it's a very stressful time now. Of course it is. And this email came in at 10 p.m., uh, about two weeks ago. So parents, as they were getting ready to go to bed, got this email saying, sorry, but no ticket for the book Oh, my year. Lord. My you know, Lord. which was, I mean, do you send an email to anyone at 10 no, p.m. No, yeah. no, I know and, it was com- it was computer-generated, yeah, but somebody must have set it for that I, time. Yeah, the, the principal, who was on her holidays, was getting emails uh, immediately afterwards. Obviously, the parents emailed the school immediately and receiving their email. Uh, most of them because they were so stressed and upset at that time of the night. Okay. Uh, so we, it has, you know, made half of the summer holidays. Ruined. Ruined. Yeah. Oh, Listen, absolutely, yeah. Stay, yeah. stay yeah. in contact with us, uh, Margaret, and um, uh, let's hope the sense, uh, and co- a bit say, of common sense. Solution. This is a community school and uh, uh, we want a school for our community. We don't want our community fractured because some faceless, nameless person has done the numbers in the Department of Education or the Department of Transport or wherever she is. Okay. Uh, yeah. Listen, yeah. Margaret, it, it, thank you for that. More than welcome. And uh, as I say, we'll keep in contact with you. That's to Kilcredden uh, National School near Lombardstown. That's uh, near um, Ladiesbridge. Like, that's nearly 10% of the pupil numbers. That's a lot of pupils that that school technically could lose if the parents decide to put their children into another school instead in order for them to get on a school bus. 0818-103-103. Now, in a few weeks' time, at the end of August, the reduced to 9% VAT on the hospitality sector will end and it will revert back to 13.5%. Recently, we heard from the Restaurant Association and the hairdressers who feel their industries should remain at the lower rate. And now publicans are also looking for the lower rate to remain in place. 
place. Michael O'Donovan is chair of the Cork Vintners Federation and Michael joins me. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning, Patricia. Um, are you looking for the tourism industry to uh, the hospitality sector to almost be broken up into different car- categories and then set the rate accordingly? Yeah, look, I suppose for our members, food is a huge uh, part of their business. And what we've been asking the government is, you know, the current rate at 9% is, uh, makes us competitive. You know, if you look across Europe, 7, 8, 9, 10% is the norm. Um, and where we lie at the moment, we're mid-table across Europe. So for tourists coming here, we're competitive compared to other European destinations for food. Um, when we go to 13.5% on September 1, we're going to be the second highest uh, for, for, for VAT on food. So we're even asking at this late stage um, that they reconsider it. But unfortunately, it's been legislated for since earlier in the year. And we're getting the feeling that t- the clock is running down because the only way this legislation can be changed at this stage is if the doll is recalled. And uh, today, you know, it's, it, um, it's the 10th of, of August uh, they've only 21 days left to, to change this and we haven't heard of the doll being recalled. So it's uh, it's an uphill battle at the moment uh, to get this legislation changed. Now, we often hear of price gouging, especially by hotels uh, in Dublin. Is there a feeling, Michael, that you're all being tired with the one brush? Um, look, I, I suppose there is, uh, Patricia, but look, we can only fight our corner uh, for our members on the food side because very few of our members would have uh, accommodation. We would have a small few and they'd be rural accommodation so they wouldn't be in the same uh, league as the say the, the big Dublin or Cork or Galway Limerick hotels um, that have seen the inflated prices but look uh, our aim is to try and I suppose keep the food side of it and keep the, the VAT on the food side of it to 9% um, as opposed to increasing because Look, you don't have to be a mathematician. If uh, if the VAT rate is currently 9% and going to 13.5%, that's a 4.5% increase. And food is a very low-margin uh, product. So, like, if you're, you need volume, really, on food to, to be sustainable uh, and to keep it, the business afloat. So it's inevitable that that uh, price increase uh, from VAT will be passed on to the consumer, unfortunately. And there's the knock-on effect then. We're seeing inflation at present declining, uh, which is great for all of us, but this will have a negative impact on that uh, because food is part of the consumer price index and this will force it up um, in quarter uh, quarter four. So it's, it's, it's unfortunately going to add to inflation as opposed to what we're seeing at the moment when def- deflation across the economy is coming down. We've already seen two bars announce closures here in uh, North Cork, including one of our near neighbours here at the radio station, uh, the Wild Goose, which is a a really large um, bar and uh, restaurant. They cited the VAT increase as the tipping point. Yeah, look, it's it's going to be you know, a 50% increase on the VAT bill at the end of the month for those doing food. So, you know, 9%, add another 4.5% onto it. So it's going to be a huge chunk of money out of your turnover going back to the Exchequer. Now, the Exchequer say that it's costing the Exchequer uh, half a billion euros a year to do this. But, you know, the money they're taking on the VAT, we know that they are cash rich at the moment, that there's a surplus you know, we've been pleading with the government and ministers for the last number of months in meetings to extend this. And unfortunately, the clock is running down now. And um, it seems that they're they're going to 
press ahead and increase this VAT rate on September 1. And, you know, it's going to have a, a huge effect on businesses that are fighting to survive at the moment because, and, you know, that VAT bill at the end of the month might be the tipping point for a lot of them when they see the, the payments that they have to make to the revenue. Yeah, and I know the owners of the Wild Goose uh, said they just couldn't go back to their patrons and say, look, we're going to have to put a price this because they they had to put a price this during the year. They didn't like doing it, but they didn't have any cho- any choice. But exactly what you were talking about, margins are so tight, there's no way that a business can absorb an extra 4.5%. No, and look, it's 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 unfortunate for the consumer. And look, we know the consumer is so hard-pressed at the moment because disposable income has been, you know, really decimated over the last, I suppose, 12 months with gas prices, especially the electricity prices. Um, you know, your shopping basket at home has gone up, your house insurance has gone up. So the disposable spend that people have had is, is shrinking all the time. And um, the knock-on effect then is going out becomes a luxury. And unfortunately, when going out becomes a luxury, um, it's, you know, where you might do it maybe twice a month, you might do it now only once a month. And obviously for the business that's depending on you going out, having something to eat, your local pub, having something to drink as well, you know, they're affected by it as well. So we're just in the middle of a, a crisis after coming out of, you know, two horrible years with COVID. Mm. And we think that this is, you know, this is just a bad time to be doing this uh, when there's so much uncertainty out there for the hospitality industry at the moment with the cost of living that we, we were pleading with meetings with ministers the last number of weeks. But unfortunately, there hasn't seemed to be any change of their minds at the moment. OK, and how has the summer been, particularly at your own bar, the, the Castle Inn on South Main Street? Um, look, the summer so far has been steady. It's okay. there, We've seen, you know, thank God, with the uh, connectivity out of Cork Airport has <clears throat> has been great. We've seen a lot of continental Europeans, you know, Seville adding a new, uh, the new route to Seville has been great because with the heat in Spain, a lot of Spanish, ironically, are getting out and coming <laughs> over. And we've seen the last uh, three, four weeks, a lot of Spanish people coming to Cork. Um, and that's echoed by a lot of colleagues because it's, it's not the norm that they come in the summer to Ireland um, and especially coming to Cork with the with the flight. So continental European, Spanish, French, German, we've seen a, a, a lot of um, influx of them over the last six, seven weeks, which has been great and uh, it's given a, a huge boost to the economy. OK, listen, we leave it there, uh, Michael. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Thank you, Patricia. Uh, Good morning. Good morning to you. That is uh, Michael O'Donovan. And uh, Michael is the chair of the Cork Vintners Federation calling for a retention of the lower VAT uh, rate, uh, particularly for the food industry. Some of your thoughts coming in. I mentioned Puck Fair. Puck Fair officially underway for today. It runs from the 10th to the 12th of August every year in Kilorglin. And of course, this year, the committee, they say they're embracing change. (laughs) But the nuts and bolts of the festival are going to be the very, very same. But what they're doing differently this year is the goat doesn't play such a big role as it normally did. It will only be up in its cage for the opening ceremony today and then for the closing ceremony on Saturday. Ethan Bally Desmond um, says many of those goats would be very used to high settings because by the nature they live on in mountains. Uh, so they're used to climbing and being up on a, ha- on a height. So Aoife doesn't think it would phase them in any way to be in this cage. The puck, she says, also is always very well looked after. The only thing that would concern her is the amount of noise on the ground while the puck goat is in the uh, cage. They wouldn't be used to that. 
having lived on the mountains, but she's been to Pug Fair uh, many, many occasions and she always thinks the goat is very well looked after. John contacted us from Glen Gareth and said the committee in Kilorglin all work on a voluntary uh, basis and what they bring to the area is a huge benefit by way of tourism and money that comes into the local economy. He said that pug goat is always well looked after. For example, and I didn't know this, and John is a man in the know, he said, for example, the puck is weighed at the start of the festival, then it's put up in the cage and they always weigh it afterwards. And he says that if that puck was anxious or nervous in any way, they would lose weight. And the opposite has always been true. They put on weight and obviously the goat puts on weight because it is being fed and factored while it's in the cage, but it's not getting any exercise. It's obviously putting on uh, weight. John points out it is one of Ireland's oldest fairs. We need to keep our tradition. So he is saddened by the fact that the festival have decided to embrace change and they've taken on what animal rights groups are saying and they are changing the way it's been done this year. 0818103103. On the school buses that we spoke about in the last hour, under De Valera's Bunrocks Naharan, 1937, it clearly states, says Patrick, in our constitution that you can choose what school you want your child to attend. Patrick lives in the western side of McCroom. All of his children went to Clondrohid National School. Now Patrick said it was easier for him to travel to Clondrohid due to traffic build up in McCroom. Now he does accept he didn't have to depend on a bus. He drove his children and collected his children from uh, school. But for other parents who have to use the school bus, uh, Patrick, who have absolutely no choice because of the hours that they work, for example, they may now be put in a situation that if they can't get a concessionary seat on the bus to the school that they want to send their children to, but they will be eligible for a ticket on the bus to go to a different school, that someone in the powers that be decide that's the one that you're closest to as far as the crow flies. Some parents will be in that situation and they'll be forced to move their children, take them out of the school that they want them to go to, that probably the child wants to go to and have to move them to another school. And I I just think that's wrong. I just think a a seat on a bus shouldn't dictate what school your child goes to. 0818-103-103. Donica says in relation to the shortage of school bus seats for students and listening to Senator Tim Lombard on the programme when I was listening to him said Donica you'd think he was in uh, opposition totally divorced from his own Fianna Gael party who are of course in government with Fianna Fáil and the Greens this problem has been going on for years and they've been in government during all of that time and that's from Donica a member of Sinn Féin in uh, Skibbereen and then Martin this is to do with flotels that I mentioned at the top of the programme this is a plan that's now it seems uh, reading the papers today is being progressed by the government. They're going to go to uh, tendering and the idea is to have floating asylum seeker accommodation. Similar, if you've seen it on any of the English news uh, channels, similar to what has recently been opened in uh, Britain. They're going to, the government are going to be putting out tenders for these floating kind of barges that would then be done up to make them suitable for uh, accommodation. And then, of course, once they have the flotels, it will then be decided where they're actually going to put them. That hasn't been decided uh, yet. Uh, Martin says when it comes to using floating hotels for 
asylum seekers. Why are we letting so many foreigners into our already full to capacity small country? It's not even a country, it is an island. Well, we are a country, but yes, we are an, we're an island nation, Martin, I think is what you're trying to say. Uh, Martin says, look, I'm not racist, Patricia, but enough is enough. Our small island has done its job. So now is the time to not leave any more asylum seekers in. We have a disgrace of a housing and accommodation crisis at the moment. And yet more and more Ukrainians and asylum seekers are coming to our shores. All of this will end badly for us, the Irish. What about the homeless Irish people? The government needs to wake up and cop on. And many feel the Irish are being treated very badly and we feel, some feel we're becoming the foreigners in our own country now. That's from Martin in Fromoy. Someone else says, uh, will you tell the what this person references as the do-gooders and these are the people who I mentioned, that one gentleman in particular that I mentioned, uh, John Lennon from, the, from Doris, the Limerick-based Human Rights and Migrant Rights uh, Association who's against the idea of these flotels and feel that they'd be like floating prisons and they don't allow... Uh, any of the asylum seekers that come to this country it doesn't allow them to integrate into the community if they're on these floating uh, barges. Uh, a texter saying saying to people like that and people who are advocating on behalf of migrant uh, rights, would they not think about our own first? At the moment, you can't get a doctor's appointment. We have a housing crisis. People can't get a home to call their own. I have no problem with refugees uh, coming, but we have to have the services. Our hospitals can't cope at the moment. They are already under pressure, bringing more people into the country just adds to an overstretched uh, service. And Finbar is quite annoyed on this topic as well and says, when is the government going to wake up? When are they going to close our borders? We've left more than enough people into this country. Now we've got a health system that's in crisis. We can't get houses for people. We've got many Irish people, 12 to 15 years on a council waiting list. What? Where are all of the other countries? I've seen videos online. There is a lot of hatred and divide now happening in this country due to what the government are doing. Finbar also says there are five apartments in the estate where Finbar lives. They're lying idle, fully complete. Nobody living in them, all for single people. I'm really surprised to hear that, Finbar, because we know there's always a scramble for accommodation for single people. He said there's another block of three apartments boarded up. They've been boarded up for nearly uh, two years this government says Finbar is setting a very dangerous precedent where what they are doing to the citizens of their own country, I'm totally not racist, as I mentioned earlier, but we have to remove hate and this divide, dividing the country by closing the borders and then invest in services before every service in the country is collapsed. And Finbar said, I'm sorry for venting, but I know a girl, Patricia, and her little boy, and she has until the 30th of September to try to find accommodation from the both. She's been on daft.ie on a daily basis. She's online constantly trying to look for accommodation, but she's going to be made homeless at the end of September. She's now at her wit's end. She has been crying, telling me how worried she is. I feel in my heart for this uh, young mother. She's nine years on the housing list and never even been offered accommodation from the council. She's lots of letters of support. She's done everything possible. She's gone into the council to fight on behalf of her young boy. But her big problem is her young boy is settled well in school in uh, Mallow and she's been told to bid for houses outside of the area. The girl doesn't drive, doesn't have a car and the young boy has already made school friends in Mallow. How can a mother uproot and leave Mallow to go somewhere else 
that will affect the young lad's uh, both mental health and will be torn away from his friends. This girl is HAP approved. No help for her. She is an exceptional tenant. Um, I can vouch for that. Her uh, The apartment she rents is absolutely in pristine condition since the day she moved in. And the government are leaving in people to this country, finding accommodation for these people. And this young mother and her little boy will be homeless come the 30th of September. It is so wrong. So, so uh, wrong. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And there's so many stories, isn't there, just like that all over the country of people facing eviction and scrambling to try and find accommodation. And, and then, of course, if they can't find accommodation, they'll end up in emergency accommodation, which means ending up living in a hotel room or a B&B. And, you know, for a mother and a young child, it's, it's no way to raise a, a child. 0818103103. And then on a completely different uh, topic, Tom in Bantry wants to raise a section of road in his area. It's from Farmers Lane to Reenrower East in Bantry. Now, according to Tom, this road is really in very bad disrepair. There's about 250 houses that have to use this road on a daily basis to access their living accommodation. He says the road is sinking in places. A lot of houses on this road are new. Nothing's been done about the road, despite roads nearby having been done up, but this road seems to have been ignored. Now, he says residents have contacted local councillors and the county councillors and the county council, but nothing has been done. He also wants to point out this road is part of the Wild Atlantic Way. So if it's part of the Wild Atlantic Way, we're encouraging tourists to travel on this road that, according to Tom, is sinking in parts. Love to hear from somebody living on that road and God, how bad is it um, to be... Imagine having to drive in and out on a road that's sinking in parts every day if you want to go to work, if you want to go do your shopping, if you want to drop the children anywhere. It seems absolutely crazy. And then there was a road closure yesterday in Kiskane. We received, John Paul says, we received calls from residents in Kiskane who were unhappy as a road was closed between Dune Bridge and Kiskane. One caller, for example, had plans for a cement truck to travel to his home but they wasn't aware that there was a road closure. Callers were angry at the lack of notice from Cork County Council and no, no prior warning. So we got onto Cork County Council and they've come back to us to say that they are progressing surface dressing works on the road yesterday and they did it under a stop-go operation and they can confirm to us that the road was not closed at any stage. Stop-go was only in operation when the works were taking place, which didn't commence until half ten yesterday morning due to moving machinery. On occasion, if the road is too narrow, they would have to implement an all-stop for a short period of time to allow the works to operate safely. With all the works, <coughs> works emergency vehicles, local access, and in this instance, a cement truck, would have been accommodated if advised. So obviously, do I, do I take it that people just went up and saw the stop and thought the road was closed and didn't have the patience to wait for a stop coast system? It seems totally, totally bizarre. OK, but glad to point that out that that road wasn't closed. It was under a stop go. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. C103 Jobs. Ward personnel, they're recruiting machine drivers for diggers, cranes, lorries and dumpers. Email CVs please to jobs at wardpersonnel.com. Person required for cooking in abandoned canteen, no weekends or bank holiday work. Email CV to Casey Catering Cork at hotmail.com. 
Butterfield Pharmacy have a vacancy for a full-time counter assistant. Experience desirable, although not essential. CVs to butterfieldpharmacy at gmail.com. And a person is wanted for a furniture and carpet store. That's in Bantry. Experience will be preferred, although not essential. Call TIG 86 8379790. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. An analysis of dentists signed up for the dental treatment scheme shows an acute shortage of professionals available to provide free dental care to adults who hold a medical card with waiting times growing all the time. To discuss the current crisis, I'm joined by Kieran O'Connor. Kieran is a member of the Irish Dental Association and he works as a dentist in Yall. Good morning to you, Kieran. Good morning, Patricia. And you're welcome to the programme. I, I'm probably wrong to say the current crisis, Kieran, because this problem has been building up over the last number of years. Are dentists continuing to leave the state system? I suppose to start off, Patricia, it's five years since I first spoke to you on this programme and five years later I would have hoped things would have approved and of course they're dramatically worse. And we've op- dentists who operate the DTSS medical card scheme. It's a scheme based on a 1994 model of care. It's profoundly outdated and has been for a long time. So dentists initially slowly left the scheme and over the past 18 months have left it in droves. So now we're at the point that there's barely 600 dentists left in the scheme nationwide. And with 1.5 million medical card holder patients eligible for care, you can do the simple sums yeah, and see it's just not going to work. Those numbers don't uh, d- just don't end up. And even for those who can get an appointment, uh, Kieran, uh, under this uh, DTSS uh, scheme, as a dentist, you're curtailed, aren't you, in the work that you can provide? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, very, it's essentially an outdated model where the only thing that patients can have on unlimited supply of is extractions. Now, that's the Victorian model of dental care. Um, you know, we're in a first world economy with access to good science, good health care in theory, and extractions are the only thing that patients can have unlimited access to. So it's, it's totally out of step with contemporary dental care. There are restrictions on what can be done with techniques and materials. So dentists who want to offer their patients the best contemporary care with the best will in the world are kind of saying, actually, no, I'm walking away from this. And we're now in a perfect storm where we have a growing population. And thanks to all the advances we've had, we now have people keeping teeth by and large for a lifetime, which is brilliant. Mm. But we've got people with unmet disease that are having lots of extractions. And we've reached the point now where our population has got bigger, but we now don't have enough dentists either to provide the care. And that's really grown in the past three, four years in particular. Yeah, that, that that's a kind of a separate issue as well, isn't it? Yep. The, you know, outside of we don't have the dentists working under, under the medical card, we don't have enough dentists even in, in private practice. No, um, and, you know, we did a survey in April that said probably four out of five practices are not accepting new patients because they're at capacity. So it's it's become a perfect storm. And, you know, dentists are struggling to provide the care to the patients they already treat and don't have the capacity to 
treat new people and practice they're finally if a dentist retires or moves moves away they really are struggling to find a dentist to replace that dentist so that's exacerbated the problem are, so, are we simply not training enough dentists we're we're not training enough um and when we're not training enough eu or irish dentists um the dental schools are under huge pressure because you know they've got finite resources and we have an analysis that shows we probably need about 500 extra dentists across the private and public sector. And that you can't expand dental schools overnight. That involves a long-term project. Now, we do welcome that Minister Harris has announced increased places, but that's going to take a while to come on track. And with the amount of non-European economic area dental students that are training, you know, they are training in the two dental schools, and that's great. But you can't instantly ramp up the capacity, and that's that's become quite a problem. And again, dentists from outside the state, if they come to work here, well, they're not attracted to the outdated medical card scheme either. So it's 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 complex, and it's it's simple. We need a we need more dentists, but we need a public system that's working better. Yeah, I I didn't realise that we were training uh, dentists from uh, outside uh, the EU. For example, there's a number of Canadian students come to Ireland to train as dentists. They do, and and they have done for the past decade or so, and we've been into a governmental agreement with Canada where there's mutual regulation qualifications, which which is great because it means that Irish dentists who graduate have been able to go to Canada, get broad experience and come back with new skills. So, you know, third living institutions thrive on diversity and students from different parts of the world and you know we're training lots of doctors from outside the state in lots of other sectors as well so from the third level point of view that makes it a very broad diverse learning environment but then they but, they, but, they go home when they're but trained then they go home, but then they go home <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know you know when i qualified 30 years ago we were at the point that all irish graduates probably 95 percent emigrated immediately wow so in my practicing lifetime, it really has turned absolutely upside down, which is great that people, you know, are by and large able to stay here. Some people will choose to go abroad for experience and that happens across healthcare. And that's really good because when they come back, they come back with a particular experience of different healthcare systems that probably work better. So all that interchange of knowledge is great, but it means at the moment we have dentists in short supply. This is, yeah, this is a real, real um, uh, crisis. And do I assume, uh, Kieran, if you've, if there's already, I saw in the, the dental, uh, Asso- dental Association survey that one in six patients can wait up to three months for an elective uh, appointment. Are there even longer lists if it's orthodontic or God forbid if somebody needs oral surgery? Absolutely. And that's in both private and public systems. But the, I mean, the challenge within, you know, what, parents would call the school dental system is you know their numbers have dropped they've got 23% fewer dentists than they had 15 years ago Um, so we've got a public system that is failing um, because there aren't enough people able to provide the care there Um, waiting lists for orthodontists have got longer waiting Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For everything, I've got longer. And the school screening, which is a fabulous safety net system where, you know, 15 years ago, a child would expect to be seen in first class, third class, sixth class for screening. No, they probably won't be seen for screening until sixth class, which is way too late. Yeah. And they're not being seen because, you know, there are not enough dentists within the public system to see them. Now, that also means then that more of those children are feeding into the private system, which, of course, doesn't have the capacity. And it's all feeding into this just perfect storm at the moment. Yeah, and that school screening programme was working so well. And, you know, one of the reasons that there are a number of adults walking around who you say will possibly hold on to their teeth for life. Absolutely. And, you know, it worked really well. And certainly, you know, when I was a child, it worked very well. I'm sure you remember it working. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that was before we had a lot of the technology we have today, but we had more dentists on the ground working for the health board at the time, HSE, you know, able to provide the care. But this has been run down over the past 15 years in particular, where people have retired and they haven't been replaced. So the service, the people working there are working really hard to provide the care, but there just aren't enough of them. And the dentists that are there, we need to get more of those to go back and re-engage with the, with the DTSS scheme. So to me, a simple enough solution is we need an entirely new dental scheme. You can't operate on something that was put in place in 1994. You can't no. do that in 2023. No. And, and it has embraced my entire practising lifetime. And a lot of what I do now is so different than it was when I qualified. So new dentists who are qualifying, they're not, they're not even engaging with the scheme, a lot of them, because they're going, this isn't what I've trained for, this isn't what I want to do. And, you know, the Dental Association, our doors are open to have engagement on a progressive way forward that's going to allow dentists to provide the care they want to provide and allow patients to access it. But no, none of this can happen quickly, and with the shortage of dentists, this makes it more complicated. But, you know, there are other countries that are able to provide services make good use of resources and, you know, give access across the spectrum for people for the care that they need. And as a profession, you know, we're very cognizant of that. We want to do that. We're able to do that. We have the skills to do it. But it's, you know, we're stuck in this time warp now and, you know, there has been no progress. As I said to you, five years ago, I spoke to you about the same issues, thinking, well, at least maybe now it'll be better. And if anything, it's worse. It's worse. It's crazy. It's crazy. And and very difficult for people, uh, Kieran, who are struggling with toothache. Absolutely. 
leave with people, but with the best will in the world, if if a practice doesn't have capacity, it really does struggle. Yeah. Yeah, there's only so many appointments in the day. All right, uh, listen, Kieran, pleasure as always to talk to you. Thank you for Thank that. Thank you, Patricia. And, and uh, hopefully we'll talk with some good news. Yeah, that would be terrific. Thanks for that. Bye bye. Bye bye. That is uh, Kieran O'Connor, who uh, works as a dentist in uh, Yall and a member of the Irish Dental Association. I, I, I remember speaking with Kieran. I didn't realise it was five years ago, though. Um, the situation worse instead of better. It's crazy. Nobody seems to be listening to the dentists themselves, the ones on the ground who have the solutions and also can see what's wrong with the current situation. But I've always felt that that model that they've used for the medical care patients that, you know, when they go into a dentist, that they can have as many extractions as they like, but they're limited in the number of, say, fillings that they can do. And it's crazy for a dentist to have to with to. And, and you can understand why somebody would say, take it out if you're in so much pain. And the only option left for the dentist is to take it out. But if there was other options that they could look at, because dentistry has changed so much, but under the medical care scheme, they're told no, uh, that that's what you must uh, do. And that must be heartbreaking for dentists uh, as well, because they're in the business of trying to maintain people's teeth. The Jack and Jill uh, Children's Foundation, the charity that funds and delivers in-home nursing care and respite support for children with severe to profound cognitive delay, are once again holding their Up the Hill for Jack and Jill fundraiser. And to talk about the fundraiser and the fantastic work of the Jack and Jill Foundation, I'm joined by uh, Cloda Hogan. Good morning to you, Cloda. Good morning. Thank you for having me on, Patricia. Well, you're you're very welcome. And anything we can do to promote the great work uh, that you that you do now up the hill for Jack and Jill. How how many years have you been running this particular fundraiser, and is it something that's grown over the years? Absolutely. This is, I think, year nine of the event um, that we've taken it over. And it actually started with a family who were doing this as a local fundraiser to give something back to us, which is something we find extraordinary that families, despite all the challenges they have, you know, want to support us right back. So it's a really great sense of community. So we took it over, I think, for uh, about nine years ago, and it's grown from strength to strength each year. We've our friends in Abbott are actually supporting us with it this year and getting behind and sponsoring it, which makes a massive difference to us and we've also got the Gaelic Players Association involved so Cork Hurler uh, Patrick Collins is leading the charge and it's great to have these local kind of county heroes um, you know helping to shine a light on the campaign and and the impact of our, our um, charity on in the locality because you know right now Patricia we have um, 50 families across Cork under our care and we've looked after 336 over the last 26 years so Goodness. you know the demands in our service are such that, and they're growing all the time that we need to really be innovative in terms of the fundraisers um, that we um, come up with because um, we've a massive fundraising hill to climb you could say each year we've 6.8 million to keep the service going and only 25% gets funded by the government so we really rely on community and on corporates and on partners and, um, you know, everybody to help us, you know, in keeping the show on the road. And they're just wonderful. When we when we call, I have to say our supporters are just there and going up the hill for Jack and Jill. It's a lovely ring to it. And it's just urging people to, you know, join with family and friends, climb a local hill in support of our families for each registration yeah, I, fee I, I, I of suppose. 18 euro for each adult. It's it's one hour of nursing care to support a local family. So it goes I, a long way and makes a real difference. Difference. Okay, I suppose just explain okay, to I listeners, Cloda, what we mean by up the hill for Jack and Jill, what you ask of people to do. 
Yeah, it's basically climb a hill in solidarity with our families. Like it's they've an uphill challenge every single day uh, to deal with. You know, their child will have highly complex needs. They might have up to 20 pieces of equipment or like a mini ICU in your in your in the home, you know. So it's about kind of giving them that break and that gift of time away from the day to day stresses. And that's what our service is all about. So we're asking people to really help provide that gift of time by going up a hill and climbing that hill in solidarity with our families and raising some funds as well. You might register on our website for that 18 euro for every adult participating and just find a local landmark to to climb a hill. It could be just to walk in the park, but it's about getting together as a community, raising some funds and then coming back to Jack and Jill to support local families. It's as simple as that. So it might be friends, neighbours, families. It might be colleagues, you know, in a company, you might be looking for something as a team building exercise to do. And this is a lovely way of, of giving back as well it's a win-win for everybody involved really and you mentioned you're currently working with 50 children here in here in cork a lot of these families uh, Cloda, are almost hidden in that the work that you do is done behind closed doors because it's in the family home many people may even not be aware in their neighborhood that they will have a jack and jill baby or a jack and jill child this is it. I mean, something I've been with Jack and Jill now for the last two years and it's extraordinary. My eyes have really been opened to the impact and the, the reach, you know, that community sense there. You know, we have families all across the country. There are over 400 at the moment. So you might know it, but there might be a, a Jack and Jill family in, in the community around you and, um, you know, receiving our care. And as you say, it's, it's behind closed doors. Our families, sadly, have always because of the condition and their child would always have been vulnerable um, that they would have been isolated um, anyway in a lot of respects. So they really need that that support. And it's just a wonderful way, you know, up the hill is a great way to support these families. Um, but there's other ways as well people can do so. You know, we opened a shop. We're very happy. Cork, you know, has a huge amount of families, obviously, under our remit at the moment and has done and over the years. And we opened one of our charity shops in Yall, actually, um, uh, quite recently. And it has been flying. It's a great success Brilliant. story. And that's another way people can go in, whether it's, you know, giving in some pre-loved goods, whether it's finding a lovely treasure, whether it's an item of clothing or a household good. And also people can volunteer. And, you know, we're always looking for volunteers if people want to give a few hours a week. Um, it's a lovely way for people to kind of, you know, make a difference in the community. Um, but also, you know, having met with a number of volunteers over the years, you know, it's great fun, you know, and um, they have great great camaraderie and you'll have your regulars who come in and um, you know it has a lovely sense of community about it as well so you know we'd welcome anyone who wants to visit our our y'all shop please do so um, and there's other actually another way that might interest your listeners um, I've got small children and there's always Lego all over the house and we're doing um, that I'm tripping up over um, but we are doing a Lego drive at the moment as well so you know if anybody has any pre-loved Lego they want to find a new home we have actually recycle it in our shops and oh. we'll do so in y'all and Circle K our friends in Circle K have, have come on board and you can actually deposit your Lego to the Circle K there in um, Castle Redmond or there's another one in Douglas and they're taking delivery of the of the Lego and then bringing it our, our friends in DPD are then bringing us as, as far as uh, Jack and Jill and, um, and we'll then resell that in our stores so it's a great way to recycle and also to give back so whatever way people want to support us we welcome it. Economy and it's and it's helping children and and I love the idea with Lego because that would 
have been Lego that was played with by children. So it's children helping children. This is it. And it's lovely to get kids involved to understand about giving back. I think that's a really important lesson for children and schools, to be fair, are great at doing that as well. So if somebody out there is a teacher or a principal in a school or in a crash or in a childcare setting that wants to get involved as well, we've got this Lego drive going for a number of years now and we sell the Lego in our shops. I think it's um, it is exactly 10 euro per kilo of Lego. So somebody else can, you know, um, ten, can use it and that, that encourage that play but it's also making a difference for the children under our care so yeah it's, it's a great way for children to really get involved and understand the importance of giving back and supporting others okay you um talk to me about what uh, it means to the, family, means to the family to have jack and jill come into their home so it just means the world these families have so many challenges on a daily basis and all they need is a bit of time out. They don't need the health health and the kind of I'm sorry for your troubles. They need real support. Our nurses often say they go into the, the home and the first thing we'll do is put on the kettle and just ask them, how are you doing? Are you OK? What can I do to help? And that's making the world of difference. I know one of our nurses said um, one of, of the mums under her care was in the middle of peeling the carrots and her daughter had a seizure and it was all very complex. And the nurse just put everything down and just went over and finished peeling the carrots. Mm. You know, obviously, there's the medical um, side of things and giving support and helping out with things and have, and giving advice. And they're, they're really are invaluable, our nursing team. You know, the, the mums and dads under care will know to ring. You know, they can ring their Jack and Jill nurse to say, this has happened. What do we do? Is it time to go to hospital or whatever it might be? You know, it's great to have somebody in your corner that can help with that advice. But our mission is all about empowering parents to care for their child at home. Our parents, I suppose by default, become medical experts. They have to deal with all of this really complicated jargon um, um, to care for the child at home, but they want to care for the child at home and not in a hospital setting. I met one family yesterday, actually, a beautiful mom called Adele and her son Harvey and their granny Patty. And they're a lovely little dynamic trio. And um, Harvey was given only a very short time to live um, when being sent home. Like they wanted to have him at home um, as as a, a little baby, a few months old. And uh, they brought him home. And didn't Harvey, you know, through all the love and care and support, Harvey celebrated his fourth birthday recently. Wow. And and he is a thriving little boy in his own way. He is is just fabulous. And, and it's all, as Adele said, it's all about making memories with Harvey and, you know, living your best life through these wonderful, unique children. And um, and that's what it's all about. It's just giving them a sense of normality, I guess. And in some cases, you know, some of our families, they might have other siblings. And, you know, life is very different for those siblings than you might have imagined when you have a child in the house that has such complex needs and needs, obviously, the attention in those moments. So, you know, to be able to bring a nurse in and so mom or dad could, you know, go to a GA match or they could go and, you know, you know, bring them for a hot chocolate or go to the zoo or photo or whatever, you know, they might do together as a family. It's having that moment, uh, that one to one precious time. Um, is really vital and, and to get that attention. So it's really invaluable and is a, li- a lifeline, as I said, um, for many of our families. Right. It's, it's, it's incredible the work, that, the work that you do. And the, and the other um, side of it is, I know you look after these uh, little ones up to the age of six because uh, predominantly they have very short little lives. Isn't, isn't that the reason it's up to the age of six? 
Well, where we come in, we used to be up to the age of four and we increased it because we did a report a number of years ago and parents, you know, very much need this support. You know, we're plugging a gap in the system. There is nothing to support them in their home to care for their child. So what we did was raise it to six. Um, and obviously we have to raise the funds to meet that demand and that service requirement. But also um, at the age of six, in some cases, you know, children will be able and eligible to go to school at that stage. And there might be other supports required in order to keep them in school. Um, and that's another story. But like for us, it's about, you know, while we'd love to extend the age beyond, you know, there's so many different requirements for that and funding needed. So, you know, we bring them to the age of six and it really is a wonderful thing to be able to do to help them to support them up to that age. There's a great um, relationship and a bond with Jack and chill because you're there for up to 80 hours a month in the family home and you're there at the request obviously and the invitation of the parents to be in the home and it's quite a privilege to be part of that um, and uh, yeah it's 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 really really great and well I done. hope whoever uh, and, can support us will do so. You said 6.8 million you've got to raise every year and only 25% at state funding so it's a huge battle every year isn't it for Jack and Jill? Yes, it is a mammoth undertaking, I have to say. We've we've become really innovative over the years. Um, you know, things like our Incognito Art campaign, which I know we've been on with you. You've yeah. been very kind of just on talking about that before and, and getting local artists to support us as well and by selling those brilliant postcard styles art um art pieces. Um, you know, it's about innovation, it's about, you know, there are lots of other worthy causes out there and it's about trying to, I guess, um shine a light on the families under our care as a priority because they they need um they need the support we need to keep the service going while there isn't a provision um for it and um you know i often meet these families and they're absolutely exhausted um, you know, um, I have two smallies myself and at the best of times I am as well. And it's just, you know, um, I can't imagine what it's like having the regime that they have. So um, having a support service that comes in with no means test and no waiting list um, really means the world to them. We're just we, we go into the rhythm of the family life and, you know, tailor our service to what they need. Um, and I actually met a family once that, you know, they wanted to go to a a family wedding but um, they'd had their little boy was born during COVID so nobody had met their little boy and what we did was we went in we had a nurse there for the day brought their little son to the wedding so they could meet everybody but then brought him home and minded him and cared for him at home so that mom and the daughter could actually enjoy meeting everybody and the family and all you know have their time together so you know it really is unique and bespoke to each family under our care it really is precious okay just to wrap up Clodagh how can people register for Up the Hill with Jack and Jill so if they go onto our website uh, you know any way they can find to support us it's all there on jackandjill.ie for Up the Hill specifically it's 18 euro to register for every adult participating and that gives us one hour of home nursing care for family and the community and then all they have to do is rally the troops you know reach out to family to friends to neighbours to colleagues and get them to come up that hill with you and it's a lovely healthy way to get out and about hopefully there'll be some sunshine it's been a a tricky summer Um, and you know go choose a day and time that suits you we'll send out a t-shirt and banners to all those that have registered and we'd love if people could take photographs and, and post it on social media and tag us simply because 
you know, for our families, you often feel isolated. And for us, it feels like, oh, we're keeping on trucking along. But to see people share their photographs on social media, it makes people feel less alone. And it feels like you've got this community support and it's something really special. So we'd encourage anyone to go onto the website and, and the rest is all there for them to find. OK, listen, pleasure as always to talk to you, Claudia. Thank you for that. And the best of luck to everybody involved with Jack and Jill. You're an amazing organisation. Thanks, Patricia. Appreciate your support always. Good morning to you. Bye bye. That is Clodagh Hogan uh, joining us from the Jack and Jill Children's Foundation. This week on our Hours to Protect series that we run on Friday at about a quarter to 12. I'm looking forward to tomorrow's Hours to Protect because we're going to uh, be looking at uh, those people that say I do to sustainable weddings. So it'll be interesting uh, to hear how you can have a sustainable wedding that's coming up on the programme tomorrow on our Hours to Protect uh, feature. Some of your thoughts uh, coming in. A lovely text in uh, from somebody who was listening to my chat with Clodagh from the Jack and Jill uh, Foundation. Said, Patricia, I'm listening in awe to Clodagh speaking about the work of the Jack and Jill Foundation. Now, can I make a suggestion, please? Instead of looking for ways to spend the current surplus that's there in the Exchequer, the government should really sit down and properly fund the likes of Jack and Jill and indeed similar organisations. It is ridiculous that new schemes or new pieces of architecture, laudable as they may be, are being even entertained when at the same time we've got these amazing organisations and they're already in existence but they're struggling with funding. It breaks my heart that they're supporting the most vulnerable families in our community and they're supporting them with their hearts and their souls while at the same time they're forced to hold out a begging bowl with both hands. Uh, The ministers really need to uh, step up and well put, well put. Thank you for that uh, message. And, and Jack and Jill, it's it's an organisation we've spoken with many times in the past because, you know, and it's it's the one point and I made it to close and I'm sure I've made it uh, before in the past because these little children who are born with life limiting conditions, you know, for some of them, they have very, very short lives uh, indeed. And all the families want to do is to bring their children home and to try to make as many memories as they can with these, you know, these precious little children and they can only do that with the help and the care that they get from the Jack and Jill nurses who go in and who allow their lives to be a little bit normal for that short period of time when, you know, somebody with medical training is with them inside in the house. And a lot of it is done behind closed doors because these some of these children are really, really sick little babies and sick little toddlers. So they never, you don't get to see them out and about. As, as I say, I, I would know of communities where Jack and Jill nurses, nurses were going into housing estates and nobody in the housing estate would have even been aware that there was a Jack and Jill uh, baby living there. So they just do absolutely amazing work. So anything we can do whenever they've got fundraisers we're only too happy to promote them. And and you're right, again, you know, saying only 25% of their funding comes from the state so they've got to come up with all of, of the rest of it and they never leave a family down. They're never going to turn around and say to a family we can't give you a Jack and Jill nurse today because we don't have the funds. They've never done that. They've, you know, they will go out with the begging bowl to get the money and it's kind of similar to what we did last week on the programme when I spoke with the Laura Lynn, the Children's Hospice. That's another organisation that I think should be just totally funded by the state. These are the children coming to the end of life 
care. And we spoke about Laura Lynn and how important that particular service is. And again, they're another organisation that has to go out and fundraising. Just, it seems wrong. And, and when you look at the amount of money that we put into our health budget, I mean, it runs into billions. It's not millions anymore. It's billions uh, every year. And yet we have these organisations doing their work quietly, uh, just working with the families, helping to support the families. And, and they are the ones that don't get the full funding. I, I can never understand how money can't be found for the likes of Jack and Jill and Laura Lynn. So thank you. I do appreciate your text to 0862103103. Talking of uh, text, today is Thursday. So Jane Pickett, our resident vet, will be joining us. So if you have a pet question, you can get the pet questions in either into uh, John Paul on 0818103103 or if you want to text or WhatsApp in a pet question, you can to 0862. 103103. We've been talking about migrants and asylum seekers and in, in particular those who come to this country looking for international protection with this, with now the government looking at these flotels for asylum seekers and according to the papers today the government are progressing and they're going to put a tendering process in place similar to what's already been done uh, in Britain. <clears throat> The idea will be uh, floating accommodation. How much of it? We don't know. We don't have details of where these flotels will be berthed. That's all is yet to be uh, finalised. But what they're now going to do is they're putting out e-tenders seeking floating accommodation for international protection applicants. Now, it will only be for international protection applicants because the Ukrainian uh, accommodation procurement uh, team that's separate to those that come here looking for asylum they are not considering uh, floating accommodation. It's those who are coming here uh, seeking uh, asylum. So John says, Patricia Pather Tobin said recently that 2,000 deportation orders were issued in the last two years and only 200 of those people were deported. Where are the other 1,800 people um, that failed to get asylum here? Shambles is the word that comes to mind, says John. Well, I, I don't know when Pader, how recently Pader was talking about that, but I do know back in March of this year, a discussion uh, paper from the Department of Justice spoke about deportation orders and the this discussion paper from the Department of Justice admitted that the majority of Irish deportation orders are never uh, carried out. The report said that the deportation would never be a direct solution to reducing the strain on the immigrant uh, system and it could only ever act as a deterrent. And it went down through figures back from 2017, for example, where there was 930 deportation orders, but only 140 of them were, were actually affected, as they say, the people were actually deported. Uh, 2019, 1,468 separate deportation orders, of which only 290 people were uh, deported. But they, they say the, the research paper acknowledged that deportation was not always straightforward and there was no easy decisions and that some of those deportation orders could be very painful. And they made the point that behind every single removal, there's a human element and there's also cases of individuals that simply can't return to their own country. And, you know, they spoke about things like how people fleeing their country are willing to do whatever it takes, you know, and that means doing dangerous crossings in the Mediterranean or the English Channel. We only saw uh, going into, was it Italy, the migrants that have been uh, lost and many of those are children. So we know the lengths people go to uh, to come to another country to seek um, 
um, asylum. You know, and they also talk about that they do know that many people come and they come for a better life and it's not necessarily they're fleeing war. It's not necessarily um, that they're fleeing for their life. They're coming to try to get a a better life, to try to find work and to have a, a better life. So, yeah, it's uh, deportation is certainly a very, very complicated issue and it's not something new, uh, John. Deportation order is uh, issued, but it doesn't mean that that person is frog-marched to the airport and put on a plane. 0818103103. And then Eamon said, all of those people, uh, Patricia, who are demanding that our borders uh, be closed, do they also want the 700 million diaspora, the Irish diaspora from around the world? Do they want them to head home as in like uh, for like? Well, we certainly have illegals. It's the last, I think it's about 50,000, but you can never get an accurate figure on how many illegal Irish are in uh, America. But... Uh, certainly, yeah. And they, do they get deported if they're caught? They do. 0818103103. Can I give a word of warning, please, to anybody who's about to book their NCT? And this was something that I only came across and I heard about it for the first time uh, this morning. And I don't know how many people have been caught out by this, but it has forced the NCT operator. It's Atlas are the company that run the NCT in, in this country. They've now reported to the Gardaí that there's a British website that are offering slots for you to get your car tested here in this country. The site is called nctservices.org. Now, it's claiming, and I checked it out this morning, it's claiming that it's an intermediary and they charge you €76 for your NCT appointment. Now, when you go onto this website, it very much resembles the official website, but it does describe its activities as a brokerage. Those that pay then the €76 to book a slot at an NCT uh, centre then discover that they also have to pay the standard €55 and that's how much the test costs. So they end up paying in total €130 for their NCT rather than the valid amount, which is €55. Now, NCT officials say that that they've been notified um, and and they're now trying to alert customers about this uh, website. And they say, look, they're acting as an intermediary, but they are really nothing to do with the NCT service. They said they have absolutely no affiliation with NC with this particular website. They've actually posted warnings. They've reported it now to the Competition and Consumer Protection uh, Commission. They've reported it to Google and they've reported it to the Gardaí. They say there is no need for anyone to pay a third-party website in order to book your NCT appointment. And what really baffled me was this British website even have a working Irish language version of it. But if you read down through the homepage in the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, kind of in the small print, you will say, we are an intermediary service that wants to help. They say, think of us as the middlemen who do all the hard work in order to ensure you get your NCT date and the date that you really need. Now, there's one County Wicklow uh, couple, Al Keating and his wife, uh, Lillian, who've gone public because they got caught out with this website. And they did what a lot of people do. When they needed to get an NCT, they googled NCT and lo and behold, up came this website, 
they thought it was the official one. So they clicked on it and looked for a booking and put all of their information in and made the payment and just thought, oh, this must be the new way of doing it. About a month later then, they got a time slot for their NCT test. That arrived by uh, email and along they went uh, into, it was it was Arclo, which, which is one of the areas, I don't know why, but there is a slightly longer waiting time in Arclo than other parts of the country. But anyway, along they went to Arclo and got their car NCT'd. By the way, it passed, which is good to hear. And then they, when, you know, as you go to leave the NCT centre, the person said, 55 euro, please. And they said, oh, we've already paid. And they said, no, you haven't. And they said, yeah, no, we paid on the website. And then the people working at the NCT in Arclo said, that isn't us. That's nothing to do with us. You only pay for your test on the day it's on the day you have your test. So they had to pay all over again. And that's the way it is for everybody. When you book your test and you put in all of the details, the money doesn't leave your account until the day that you do your NCT. And this particular couple, the, the Keatings, are making the point, they're very annoyed that they feel they got scammed and got duped, but they're making the point that there are people out there who can't afford the €55 Euro and are scraping it uh, together and then let alone to be duped out of an extra €76. Uh, Euro. And they say it certainly came as a nasty surprise uh, to them. So they've gone public and now obviously NCT the operator Atlas have had to go public as well because I'm assuming more people have got cut out with this. So NCT have come out to say to make it very clear that this organisation has no affiliation with the National Car Testing Service. That's what it's called in any capacity and they're now obviously urging people not not to use it and when you need to book your NCT use the official website which is www nctsie and i saw J, um jennifer whitmore you know she's a td with the social democrats uh, she she described it as a complete rip off she said the fees being charged by the middleman are eye watering 76 euro for somebody to book the nct test for you she said unfortunately consistent failures to provide a timely service by the operator have now enabled she says this type of profiteering by external uh, companies she's also questioning how the company could get access to priority appointments that it would appear not to be available to others on the waiting list. But it does seem that what this British site are doing, they obviously have employed people who are repeatedly uh, trawling through the official version. And then as soon as they spot a cancellation slot, they jump in book it immediately on behalf of their clients and that's how they're doing it. So, you know, when they say on, in the website, you know, we are, we are the middleman, we're taking all the hard work out. Technically, they are, but for €76, Euro, it's a bit much to be trawling the internet because we know the cancellations. I know I've often mentioned if you go on around midnight, it was how I managed to get um, uh, an NCT test uh, quicker when I had to cancel one due to COVID. And uh, um, I needed to get my NCT test, so I waited until just come up to midnight and the extra time starts to come available on the particular NCT centre where I wanted to do my uh, test. And that's the advice that we give a lot of people. But not everybody wants to the hassle of doing that. So I suppose this where this company is uh, jumping in. But anyway, Jennifer, the, Jennifer Whitmore, the TD for Wicklow, says the NCT operators must step in immediately and make every effort to have this site shut down. Uh, it should also examine its own processes to see how it has been uh, facilitated. And the, the current national waiting times for a test 
according to the papers today, is just over three weeks, which is which is really, really good. And a major recruitment of new test personnel is now coming on stream. So I suppose if people are able to access the test quicker, then, then they might completely uh, avoid this particular brokerage, even though I don't think people are using this particular service thinking, oh, I'll use that so I can get my test quicker. I think people like this family, like this Keating uh, couple from County Wicklow, I think they got duped into it because they did a Google search and up came this website that looks like the official uh, website. So therefore they went ahead and booked. Are they doing anything illegal? Only time will tell. But the Gardaí are looking into it now and good to see that the competition, um, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. uh, Google will be interesting. I suppose Google will only take them down if they are doing something illegal. But if they clearly state and they do because I checked it, they do say that they are an intermediary uh, service and that they're a middleman who are taking the hard work away from people. So I don't know technically if they're doing anything wrong, but they certainly are. You can't call it a scam, but they certainly are charging people. I would feel over the odds for a service that most of us can do ourselves. So please be aware of that and t- talk about that and tell people about that, particularly if you know of anyone who is scrambling or is trying to book an NCT appointment. Just be very, very careful. The web Website that you're looking out for that you don't use is NTC, no, nctservices.org. Stick with the official one, which is ncts.ie. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Used clothes collection in Gagan Hall is on today from 6.30 until 8 this evening. Also, if you're going along to drop off clothes, please note that tickets are available. €15 each for the community barbecue. Now, the community barbecue for Gagan is Sunday the 27th of August. Nazareth House Lotto Draw, that is on today at 3. While Kildallery Community Development, their weekly Lotto Draw is this afternoon at 4 in the community office with a jackpot of €9,800. Bingo is on in Mallow GAA Complex tomorrow night at 8.15. €5,700 in 48 uh, calls. And please note for people with mobility issues, the lift in the complex is still out of commission. We mentioned this last week. Uh, uh, Repairs are being carried out at the moment. Uh, So if you have mobility issues, you won't be able to use uh, the lift. And Mallow Adult Learning Centre is holding a flag day. That's this Saturday. All donations gratefully received. And best of luck to everybody taking part in the 11th annual Mickoregan Memorial motorcycle run. It's in aid of Pieta House. It'll be held on Saturday, leaving from Botterment at 12.30, with registration opening at half past ten in the morning in Kit Roach's Bar, where refreshments will be available after the run. Entries by donation, uh, please, and everyone is very welcome. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group, for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG. And pet questions, you can get them in by text or WhatsApp 0862103103. John Paul is taking them by calls as well, but the phones have been uh, busy. So if you want to get your questions in, I'd suggest text or WhatsApp because it comes straight into me here at the uh, studio. Next Sunday at 7, make sure, sure you're tuned here to C103.
three because where the road uh, takes me um, it's a four part programme called Between the Jigs and the Reels and it's a four part programme on the history and the survival of traditional music in Ireland they t- John talks with the influencers the musicians the composers the collectors and all those who've helped it survive and sometimes it has survived to very very difficult times so this week is programme two of this four part programme and this week John will meet some of the top musicians in the country uh, Frankie Gavin and the wonderful Day Dannon Tin Whistle champion Mary Bergen will feature fiddle player Matt Cranage Matt of course from Rathduff and former Day Dannon box player Jackie Daly from Cantork also taking part in the programme Jackie uh, will talk about an iconic Icelandic twist to his him joining the band that sounds like fun so that's Between the Jigs and the Reels part two of Where the Road Takes Me and that's on this Sunday um, on C103 with John Green at uh, 7 is always a lovely way to wrap up your weekend. Can I go back to, oh, before I go to that, I just want to give a quick mention because I saw a lovely text uh, come in from the gang in uh, Rose and the gang at Tyrus Jock. Fantastic charity shop in Dunmanway. Uh, she was listening to me talking about the with the up the hill for Jack and Jill. And she Rose says, Patricia, us at uh, Taris Jock, for the last 14 years, we've supported the work of the Jack and Jill uh, Foundation. Uh, thank you to the wonderful community for supporting Taris Jock to enable, enable us to be able to uh, do it. Yeah, Taris Jock is great because they divide up the money between all different, uh, be they local charities or national charities. But in a way, Jack and Jill will always be a local charity because they are helping local local children. I mean, to think 50 children in Cork today are receiving care and attention from the Jack and Jill Foundation. So thank you uh, for that, Rose, and continue good luck to the great work that you do at at Taurus Jock. Yesterday we spoke about the Connor Pass and the fact that the Connor Pass was up for sale, even though I have to say a lot of our listeners are scratching their heads going, how can we have one of our mountains in such one of the most beautiful areas of the country? How can that be in private ownership? But anyway, it is. It's making the papers again today. The Irish Daily Mail have a big uh, piece on it and we're keeping a really close eye on this to see what will be the outcome and what will happen to the uh, Connor Pass. Uh, the owner of the Connor Pass is once again urging the government to now make a concrete offer for the estate because he's now claiming that there's a private bidder has already submitted an offer for the land. Now, uh, Mick Noonan, the uh, owner, the American owner, he has been the owner, I think, for the past 25 uh, years. He's put a valuation of 10 million. He's not saying what the offer is from a private bidder, but just he's putting kind of the government on notice to say, look, there is a private bidder um, out there. He, He said he, and of course, from when... McNoonan put the Connor Pass up for sale. He's always said he would love the land to be turned into a national park. And that's what we spoke about yesterday with Tony Lowe's Friends of the Irish Environment. Tony was saying, yeah, it needs to, you know, would make a fabulous uh, national park. But the owner now is saying the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar and the government, they need to come in with an offer. And he's saying before it's too late because he hasn't put a deadline on it. But obviously, if he doesn't hear from the government and he's claiming he already has a private bid, I don't know if that private bidder has put in a bid anywhere near 10 million or not. Tony Lowe's yesterday reckoned it's overvalued at uh, 10 million. And we know that they, since Mick Noonan went public to say that the Connor Pass is up for uh, sale, there's been calls from 
not just local TDs, there's been calls from TDs all over the country. There's obviously been calls from a lot of environmental activists for the government to move in and buy the land and simply turn it into a national park, which, as I say, we spoke about yesterday. Leo Varadkar has previously said the government would be open to buying it, but he said not at that current valuation, not at 10 million. He thinks, he says, this is a quote from Leo. I think it's fair to say that the state won't be paying 10 million for the Connor Pass. But he said we would be interested in talking to the owner, but at a more reasonable price. And Leo Varadkar pointed out that it's taxpayers' money at the end of the day. But if there's a reasonable price on the table, then certainly he says we could uh, agree. But, you know, McNoonan is adamant that the 10 million he didn't make. He didn't come up with the figure of 10 million because somebody asked that yesterday who came up with the with the, with the saying it's worth 10 million. He said it was he got an auctioneer in and the auctioneer came up with the valuation and the, it was the auctioneer came up with the figure of 10 million. McNoonan is also uh, speaking to the Irish Daily Mail today, says if it does sell for 10 million, he will only be making a modest profit from the sale of uh, the land. He says, it's a beautiful place. I want the Irish people to be able to enjoy it after me. I'm not out here about to make a huge amount of money on all of uh, this. Now, some local buyers have questioned whether the land could be split up, but the current owner has a preference that the holding would be bought in its entirety. And I think the majority of people, certainly if we want to in any way consider it as a national park, then it has to remain in its entirety. By the way, the land is already classified as a special area of conservation and it's deemed visually Uh, sensitive as well. The Green Party, obviously, and they're in government, they've been particularly active in calls for the state to buy it uh, with members, a lot of them posting their opinions on various uh, social media sites. Christopher O'Sullivan, the West Cork Fianna Fáil Dáil Deputy and also actually Fianna Fáil's environment spokesperson, he says that the Connor Pass now being up for sale is a great opportunity for the state to buy it, embark on a rewilding project and prove that the National Parks and Wildlife Service is now in the business of bringing back nature. And that would be in the ideal world. That would be whatever about take the cost of it and how much it's going to cost and how much the state would have to pay for it. Take that out, out of it. But if it could be, you know, somebody was saying yesterday, why not? Wouldn't it be nice if this man gifted it back to the state? But obviously he's not financially in a position to do that. But if it was, say, to be gifted back to the state or somebody else who has a lot of money came in and said, OK, I'll pay the 10 million and I'll give it uh, to the state. What would be great then would be to see a rewilding done uh, on it. And it is one of the most scenic and beautiful parts of the country, but it will be dreadful if it goes into back into um, stays in, in private ownership and then something's done about access uh, to it. Or I think what would be worse will be breaking it up into small uh, lots. The Connor Pass would never be the same again. We're keeping a close eye on this story and we'll update you when more breaks on it. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Let's go uh, to the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group. Good afternoon to you, um, Jane. 
Good afternoon, Patricia. And you're very welcome. And I want to start by giving this a mention because I did an interview about this last week and it is with Rower, the, the, the Rural Animal Welfare Resource Group that works out of West Cork and they're once again doing one of their schemes offering low-cost neutering for cats. They're doing it for €10. Uh, Euro. And we were talking about it last week and they got on to us to say there are a few slots still available for the veterinary clinic in Bantry but they need people to call them because they need people to book in and to book your time slot so if you are in the Bantry area and interested in getting your uh, any of your cats neutered for just €10 Euro, 027 536 They're great charities aren't they and, and I know you're a big advocate of, of neutering not everybody can afford it so when charities like this step in they're fantastic Absolutely, you know, it is great work and I think, you know, a lot of charities out there, some of the bigger national charities and some of the smaller private ones, you know, they do brilliant work, they really do. And I think certainly neutering is the cornerstone of, I suppose, helping out our, our dog and cat population going forward. Um, because I suppose particularly, you know, over the last several years with the pandemic, there's unfortunately a lot of pets that may have been lovingly brought into homes, but circumstances have changed and, you know, they, they find themselves needing rehoming again. So we don't need to add to that issue further by having an uncontrolled population that are continuing to breed away. So really neutering your pets is a really responsible choice to, to avoid more unwanted puppies and kittens. But it's also a really good choice for the house as well. So yeah. longer term health benefits are a really a really interesting interesting side effect of neutering. So it, you know it can be a very very helpful thing for the pets themselves longer. And term. when when I spoke and with so. the charity last week, I mentioned particularly for cat owners, it's as important to get the tom cat done as it is to get the she cat done. Oh, absolutely, it really is. Um, so I suppose having having the female cat feed is you know up utmost critical but the boy cats as well because there's always going to be wild cats out there that haven't been haven't been spayed females so you know neutering your tomcat can actually be a really powerful thing to do in preventing that cat breeding with another female who may not have had the opportunity to be neutered yeah. um, for the boys luckily as well it's a much smaller operation yeah, the boys is. get away with it easy so yeah. they do and as well but it stops them wandering off and getting into all kinds of fights and stuff uh, as well so you, you're, you're, you're protecting them from that okay um, Susan has been on hi Patricia could you ask Jane how how old does a kitten have to be before I can get her neutered? Okay, so this is an interesting one. Quite a controversial one too. So, um, younger than you think is what I'd say, but the decision is really personal based on your vet. So, kittens can potentially become fertile and be able to breed from four months of age. There are thereabouts. Everybody's a little bit different. Um, but that said, we need to balance their ability to have kittens with the safety of their operation. Now, there's new modern techniques which make early neutering much safer for our younger pets because essentially, you know, they, they have a slightly different physiology and way their body works to an older pet. Um, so they need to be managed slightly differently when they're having an operation or station or general anesthesia. But, you know, with modern, modern technology, that's much, much safer now than it once was. I would suggest that if you're concerned about your kitten and you're wondering when to get them neutered, I will be thinking about it from four months of age onwards. It's definitely from six months of Six months later, pretty much every vet will say, yeah, absolutely. But what I will say is usually the earlier the better. Now, some factors that it can impact that is if your kitten is a very small or a very small breed, sometimes their body weight or body weight gain may not be sufficient once they hit that four or five month period for them 
for for them for your own vet to say, yeah, they're fine, they're ready to go for neutering, so they might need to gain a little bit of weight. So every situation is slightly different. What I would say is my recommendation would be flag it with your vet now, ask them what their recommendation is, because you know everything's a little bit different in each situation. Every cat is a little bit different. Every vet has a slightly different opinion on this issue. But I would say the general consensus is usually about four to six months. All right. Okay. Noreen has a, a Jack Russell who always sleeps in a shed at night. Now he's well covered in cold weather. He gets a hot water bottle, well fed, oh. etc. Recently, though, he started howling at night. Why would he suddenly start doing this? Okay, so if he suddenly started howling at night, the main thing they will howl at sometimes is a response to noise um, or a response to the call of another dog. So is it that they're hearing something new that's happened outside and it has become a regular environmental thing that they're hearing now? That's a possibility. Sometimes they can howl if they're a bit lonely. That's one thing I'd say. Um, so maybe potentially if you feel it might be loneliness is creeping in for him. So one thing you can do is put a little radio on in the background. That can help actually with masking noises outside as well. I usually suggest go for something like, like talk radio or, or classical music or something like that. Just You don't want the rock music blaring at 3am. Nobody needs that. So just try and pick something peaceful to mask that sound for your pet. But that can be really helpful. And I think it sounds like you're doing all the good things. You know, you need to make sure they have a really comfortable area to sleep in. Because they're there every night. It's like us if we had a bad bed to sleep and we wouldn't be quite comfortable. We're likely to be a lot more unsettled. So making sure they have a really comfy bed, making sure the ambient temperature in the shed is normal. So I can hear that you're doing a hot bottle and that's great if the temperature is cold, but you just might need to reassess and say as we move into the winter months, a hot bottle may not be enough. So just kind of assess, well, would I be happy to sleep out here if it was me in this temperature or do they need to come inside the house? But it sounds like you're being really cognizant and thinking about those things as well. So I think the main things are probably responding to noise, Maybe a little bit of loneliness. Radio might help. Just make sure his environment is nice and comfy. Um, but I suppose if he isn't settling, what I would say is it is possible that he, I suppose we can get behavioural changes in pets for all number of reasons and we never want to do them the disservice of discounting their medical health. So if it's not settling for him, I would always recommend routine health checks at least every, every six months to a year for each pet just to check they're doing okay. So if things are not settling with those measures and it does continue for him, just get him checked out by a vet, have a chat about the concerns in a little bit more detail. Um, and he might just ask you some quest- questions about your pet's lifestyle generally um, and to get to the bottom of it. Okay. A uh, listener has a Burmese mountain dog, female, one and a half years old, describes the dog as very smelly. Mm, I'm assuming the fur. Yes, a big, yes, big yeah. dog. Big dogs are a challenge. I must admit, lovely, lovely breed. Um, but they have a lot of hair. They hence Sorry, have a lot are, of they, are they are they the ones that Michael T. Higgins has in the Auras? They are, I believe. Are they? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah big dogs. I think it is Bernie big, he has rather than big hairy Bernie. dogs. They're just different colouring. Yeah. yeah. Big hairy dogs. <laughs> um. So. I would suggest that it may be the coat itself. Now, an interesting thing to know would be if there's been any itching or scratching or discomfort on the skin, because sometimes we have a, a rise in, let's say, the smelliness of a dog if they have a yeast overgrowth of their skin or a bacterial infection. And sometimes in a bigger dog, under all of that hair, a lot of that stuff might go hidden. So that would be my first thought as well. What's changed? Is it something on the skin? Is it a yeast infection? Is it a bacterial infection that's generating that smell? Or is it just day-to-day life so I suppose it's kind of like us 
And, you know, we need to shower to keep ourselves smelling sweet. Dogs and cats are kind of no different, although they require it far less frequently. Usually every kind of six weeks is about the sweet spot for not stripping too many oils out of their coat, but keeping them nice and clean and keeping their skin and coat health good. So if they haven't had a recent groom, I'd maybe consider that. But if you have noticed any itching or scratching or discomfort or any red patches, my first protocol would not be the groom in that case, and that will be visiting the vet to get them checked out. Um... I would say it's just a case of, of tackling the issue. Another thing that can happen and can kind of generate a smell will be oral health, so dental health. Um, bigger dogs, they tend to be quite slobbery, don't they? Mm. And sometimes the slobber can kind of settle in around mouthfuls and generate a localised bacterial infection just around the, the lip folds. That can actually smell really, really nasty sometimes because you've not only got the mix of a, a skin infection, you've all, also got all of the bacteria that would live in the mouth. So... That would be another concern. And the last thing then is one other big source of smell that we get from every dog, whether they're big or small, is dental disease. So that would be a smelly mouth buildup of plaque and tartar on the teeth and potentially gum infection. And that's a big source of smell. So that's another thing to think about. Well, is the smell coming from your pet's mouth or is it just all over generally? And again, if you have concerns about dental disease in your pet, if you feel the smell coming is coming from the mouth, I would really recommend a trip to the vet to get that checked out. Okay, as always, thank you for that, Jane. Have a lovely week. We'll talk next Thursday. You too. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a million, Jane Pickers, the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group. I guess it's funnier from where you're standing. Because from over here, I miss the joke. Clear the way for my crash landing I've done it again Another number for your nose I'd be smiling if I wasn't so desperate I'd be patient if I had the time Stop and answer all of your questions As soon as I find out How I can move from the back of the line I'll be your clown Behind the glass Go ahead and laugh Cause it's funny I would too If I saw I'll be your clown on your favorite channel, my life's a circus, circus, round in circles, setting out tonight. I'd be less angry if it was my decision, and the money was just rolling in.
gorgeous voice of Emily Sunday on C103 singing all about clown. Okay, that's where I leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards with you for the afternoon and we're back with you for Friday's edition of the programme tomorrow at 10. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.